Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. And that's the collect appointed for today, the first Sunday of Advent, November 28, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We're um, moving, as I said, into the season of Advent. It feels insane that we could already be there, but it also feels insane that we just had Thanksgiving. Um, we had a, a great time here. It was it was very, very nice. We had Will and his uh, girlfriend were with us, and so we it was great. And then we have uh, friends coming after that, and so it's been nice, uh, quiet in a lot of ways, but good, quiet in a lot of ways. We've had a little too much excitement this year for my uh, taste, let's say. Um, we've had a, a good week, um, a lot of busy things going on. It feels like we, but it felt like there was time all week. I didn't feel pressured. It just felt like a good kind of week. You know, we stayed at home because of the COVID stuff and everything else. We just decided to stay at home. We had a great visit last week with family that we hadn't seen in a very long time, probably 20 plus years. And and that was wonderful. Uh, they've been involved in ministry for um, many decades and so it's a, it was a wonderful thing to spend time with them. And um, this, like I said, this week, just kind of a quiet week, and I uh, got to spend time with friends on multiple occasions, and so it was, it was a good time. Um, looking forward to this season of Advent, which um, is a time of preparation. It, it, what we're preparing for is to receive Him. And so whether we receive Him in the coming again in this next season, or whether we just prepare our hearts again to celebrate the Incarnation, celebrate the coming into the world of light and hope, celebrate the the salvation that God wrought by sending His Son to come and live among us in order that His Spirit then might come and live within us and among us as we gather and worship. And so it's a season of preparation in the same way that Lent is. It used to be called sort of mini-Lent. Uh, and people would um, prepare by giving up um, things and making similar kind of fasting decisions during that period of time. It's not really characteristic of, of the way that it's kept any longer. Um, I am personally making some of those decisions this year and, and doing a little bit of fasting um, for multiple reasons. But um, also, one of the things that I'm finding personally necessary is to um, to give up some things and to, to push myself in some different directions because I feel like at some level I've gotten kind of out of full relationship with him. I, I'm doing the podcast every day, and that's been a very good thing. But, you know, as you get older and you're not working and things like that, then it's—and it's, especially in this time of COVID where I'm not pastoring or whatever, it, it just—it's it, easy to, to let other things— get in the front seat rather than in the back seat where they belong. And so we've, you know, the the news, for instance, the news, whether that's got to do with COVID or it's got to do with politics or it's got to do with whatever, everything seems to do with politics any longer. Um, those things, I need to put those things back and I, and I need to get things back in their proper perspective. And so that's kind of the way I'm looking at my own preparation 
for Advent, and, and it's what Jesus would have us do. He would have us focus on the essential things. Keep an eye on the world, understand what's going on in the world, but don't fixate on it. So that's the call, I believe, to Christians. And you're going to hear that today in the gospel. And it, But it's a time, too, I think, Thanksgiving can either be a day of gratitude or it can be a day that begins a season of gratitude. And that season could and should last the rest of our lives if we begin to become people who are grateful for all that we have and all that's been done for us, then then we can move some of that other stuff out of our lives and into the sort of clutter and noise place that they belong rather than being the primary focus of our lives. And so gratitude is is something I think that that we should take from Thanksgiving and move that forward into uh, Advent because we are grateful for the incarnation. We are grateful for the um, the cross. We're grateful for the resurrection. We're grateful for the ascension. We're grateful that he is coming again and that his kingdom will be established. And if we're in Jesus Christ, then we will participate in that eternal life. And so that gratitude doesn't stop simply because we sort of put it in the background a little bit as we kind of prepare our hearts again to receive him anew. And so that's my um, encouragement to you for Advent is to to allow this season to be a time of gratitude when we put things in their proper perspective. So in the the psalm today is kind of I want to look at that a little bit and and then point us in that direction. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you're the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So those are the first five verses of the uh, psalm. And it talks about waiting. Did you hear that? None who wait for you will be put to shame. For you I wait all the day long. But waiting is not simply like sitting in an airport terminal, waiting for the plane to arrive, or or sitting on the plane, waiting for the plane to take off, waiting for the plane to land, waiting for your baggage to come. Those are all passive sort of waitings where you don't, everything else that's happening here is out of your control. In the opposite of that is the kind of waiting that we're called to do, that, that Advent is for, and it's, it's a preparatory time, that, that we're not passively waiting, we're actively um, extending the kingdom while we wait for his coming again. And so he, he didn't tell us just to sit and wait. No, he says, go and make disciples. Th- those are two different attitudes, right? To sit and wait versus going and making disciples. So we've been given a work to do, and the the work we've been given to do is informed by the incarnation. It's informed by the life of Jesus. Sometimes we can get so caught up in in just the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and all, that, that we lose sight of the life. And it's the life of Jesus that tells us how we should live. And it's the way that we should live is being informed by and having our worldview, our understanding of the world around us and our place in us, in it, that needs to be informed by, completely informed by, in fact, the the incarnation. 
It needs to be informed by our Christianity, by our faith, by the things that we say we believe in the creed, for instance. It means that that our hopes shouldn't be in this world. They should be in the other world. We still live in this world, but the, the things that are most important to us should be evident in our lives and in our conversation. So we, we should be living for that, and, and that's exactly what Advent is, is a time of getting our minds back right, getting them in, things in their proper perspective. In the Jeremiah lesson today, he writes and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So the, the promise that Jeremiah makes is the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And so when the Messiah comes, he says he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. The Messiah figure will come and, and will teach the people what true righteousness is and what true justice is. So he teaches it by doing it. And so did, did Jesus do that? Can we see that in the life of Christ? Yes, we can, because he regularly would look at the leaders of the people, and he'd say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're getting things wrong. You're tying up burdens on people that you're not even willing to bear yourself, but you're tying these up on these people, and you're oppressing them. And so Jesus says, I came to set people free. And he does that in a variety of ways, right? So he does it by healing people who can't see, healing people who are deaf, people who are lepers, people who are uh, afflicted with um, the, a flow of blood. Uh, he heals people of all their infirmities, of paralyses, of all kinds of things, and he sets those people free. What is he setting them free from? And it's the, the noetic effects of sin in the world. And so because all these things happen all the things that happen to people are because of sin somehow in the world. The world is busted and broken by sin, and, and we should constantly be thinking about and remembering that thing, and we should be doing what we can to not add to that burden of sin in the world. We should be there to be those who take away that burden by bringing Jesus into the equation so that we can be different people through the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and the same for those who come to him would be the same. And so Jesus comes and he executes justice and righteousness in the land by setting people free from the yoke of sin, the slavery to sin, from the yoke of the false law that's being expounded by the leaders and by their infirmities. And so he does these things in a way that sets people free, including things like the... the um, the encounter with Zacchaeus, he, he made a difference in the lives of all the people in the district where Zacchaeus was tax collector by calling Zacchaeus to righteousness. And so when he does, Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anybody, if I've stolen from anybody, then I'll repay all of that and then some. And so everybody's lives were changed by that. And so that's what Jesus came to bring is that change. And the fulfillment of the fullness of that promise, though, awaits for the second coming when Judah is saved and Jerusalem dwells securely. 
And the, the, the name by which it will be called is the Lord is our righteousness, he says. And that's because he is my righteousness. I can't lay any claim to righteousness, righteousness on my own account. I have to lay hands on that cross to transfer my sin to him in order that I might receive at the same time his righteousness in the same way that the people that he healed, the lepers, for instance, came and they brought their infirmity. They brought their uncleanness to Jesus. And what happened was when he touched them or they touched him, whichever way it went, and he didn't have to do that, then the uncleanness was made clean. And that's the same exchange we make at the cross. We bring our sin to the cross, Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. In the gospel lesson today, I guess we could say, is Jesus wrong? And so I want to talk about the gospel a little more today than, than about the other two lessons. He, Jesus is, is speaking of a time of judgment. He's warning the people and preparing them, and the, the catalyst for this entire conversation was them speaking of the wonder of the temple, and pointing to that and saying, isn't that amazing? And, and Jesus says, that's not going to be here much longer. There's going to come a time when there won't be one stone left upon another, which would have been a shocking thing to hear, but it's absolutely true because in AD 70, the temple was actually destroyed. So Jesus spoke prophetically, and here in this passage we have today is sort of a continuation of the prophetic words that he makes after being asked that. He is out now at the Mount of Olives. It's the last week of his life. That he's come in to much acclaim on Palm Sunday, and he's been teaching in the temple every single day and causing a little bit of upset with the leaders of the people. And so that in the evening, he and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and they stayed there as part of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You had to stay in Jerusalem for that to count as righteousness. In other words, that you did the commandment meant you had to, to remain in Jerusalem the entire time. So they couldn't go out of the city and stay there and then come into the city. So the city boundaries were extended during this period of time all the way out into the Mount of Olives. And so that's where Jesus is with his disciples as he says these words. And there will be signs, he said, in the sun, the moon, and the stars. In other words, there'll be astrological signs that will be evident. And so there are a lot of people who, who study these things and who look at these things, who, who watch the stars. I'm not one of those people because for whatever reason, I look up into the stars and into the heavens and I just see stars. I don't see what other people see. I don't see, I mean, I see a beauty and a wonder and all that kind of stuff, but it, but it feels overwhelming to me. But you get guys like Johannes Kepler, who was one of the greatest uh, scientists of all time, certainly one of the greatest astrophysicists of all time, who, who looked into the heavens because he believed these words of God, and he believed that God created the heavens, and that therefore the heavens display his glory, and he wanted to, quote, think God's thoughts after him. And so he's the guy who first comes up with the laws of planetary motion, who says that, no, they don't, it's, there's not a circular orbit, it's an elliptical orbit, and that accounts for certain kinds of things. And so he believed in the orderliness of those things. Well, those things are so orderly that they predict, and they're dependable. And one of the things in the book of the Revelation is, is that God wipes the stars from the sky, right? And so it, if that happens, then, then there's certain things that are lost to us. 
like our ability to navigate, for instance, because sailors used to navigate by the stars, and they still can. They're taught to do those things, even though they have other kinds of instrumentation to do that. If those were knocked out or unavailable in some way, they'd still need to be able to navigate, and if the stars weren't there, then they wouldn't be able to do that. And so Jesus says there are going to be astrological signs, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding about what is coming on in the world. So there'll be signs in the heavens and then signs, natural signs on the earth. And we see all those same things in the book of the Revelation. We see those kinds of signs, but are those the signs he's talking about? He says, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then we'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Now, everybody else, it says, is going to be fainting with fear and foreboding for what's coming on the world. But he says to those who are in him, no, when these things take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Look to the heavens because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told him a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the question becomes, is is Jesus wrong? If this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, then was Jesus wrong? Was he saying that he was going to come again in that day? No, he was talking about these signs. And he was talking, remember, the context is is the destruction of the temple. That's where every bit of this flows out of is the question about when will these things be? And these things was the destruction of the temple, where there wouldn't be one stone left upon another. So when we look at that, then we say, okay, so what, what does all that mean? And, and then so, okay, let's say, John, we agree with you that that's what he's talking about here because, well, that's the context. <laughs> and it's what he says about the, the generation won't pass away. So what about these signs in the heavens and then all the other things, the distress and everything else? Well, how does that fit into what he's saying here? Well, it's honestly shocking. The answer to that is, and, I, and I'll give some links in the description box on the uh, anchor.fm site to this. So what if, what if John's right? What if it does have everything in the world simply to do with the destruction of the temple? And then how are these other signs in, this, in the heavens fulfilled? So there's a great historian. His name is Flavius Josephus, which was his um, Romanized name. That was not his, his birth name. He was born into a, a wealthy Jewish family. He was a descendant of the Hasmonean di- dynasty, which was begun in about 167-ish uh, B.C. with the Maccabeans. And so he was a direct descendant of those people, the people who kind of ruled over the Jewish people, uh, for about 150 years. And so they were very wealthy and influential people in Jerusalem, even in the time of Jesus. Josephus lived after that. He was there at the time of Jesus, but he primarily lived after that. So <clears throat> he was a great historian. He had been involved in a Jewish revolt at one time and then been taken prisoner by the Romans. He got a prophetic word about the Emperor Vespasian and what his role in history would be. And so the Romans kind of adopted him and took him in and 
you know, the opposite of that is also true. He became a Roman citizen. He became a, a Roman in almost every respect. But his history of the time, he, he had a particular um, bent, and that was to say, you know, people write tend to write history ahistorically. They tend to write it through a particular point of view, and they're, and they're taking sides on things. And what Josephus said was, no, I'm just going to try to write a straight-up history. You know, it's obviously everything's going to be influenced by your worldview. Right. I mean, everything's going to be going to be influenced by the side you're taking. You're going to slant your history based on the way you see the world around you, for instance. And so what he was trying to do was to write a straight history. And so what he wrote was a seven volume history of something called the Jewish Wars, when he begins with the Maccabeans and then goes all the way up through the time of the destruction of the temple. It's a seven volume history. But one of the things that it does he is Jewish, but he's Roman. He's not Christian. But Josephus attests to Jesus and the, the nascent Christian community of the day. And so we as Christians understand certain things through that lens. There are certain things that Josephus attests to that we don't find other places because nobody was writing the history of the Jews. They were writing the history of Rome. So it, Josephus is a, an unusual historian in that way, and so he's somebody that we do look to for information and confirmation. So Josephus writes that on the 21st day of the month, Artemisium, the last day of the second Passover season in AD 66, there are sometimes two Passovers in a year, there appeared a miraculous phenomenon passing belief. This is Josephus's words here. Indeed, what I'm about to relate to the world, I imagine, has been deemed a fable, were it not for the narratives of our witnesses and for the subsequent calamities which deserved to be so signalized. For before sunset, throughout all parts of the country, everywhere throughout Judea, chariots were seen in the air and armed battalions hurtling through the clouds and encompassing the cities." So Josephus says, you know, look, this is not some weird vision that I had. This is attested by other eyewitnesses, and they saw in the heavens chariots and armed battalions who, who encompassed the cities. In other words, they encompassed Jerusalem and the cities that were around Jerusalem. And it's a similar kind of a thing to what the prophet Elisha sees when he's in Dothan and in his servant says, we're surrounded by the army. And Elisha says to the, to the Lord, open his eyes. And then what he sees is the angelic armies there to protect them and deliver them from the army that have come against them. Here, it's the opposite. These heavenly armies are arrayed for battle against Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. There would be signs in the heavens. And he's not, he, Josephus, is not the only one who records this thing. There's another historian named Tacitus, who was one of the great historians of the era. He, he lived from about 56 A.D. to 120 A.D., and he's a Roman historian. He's not a Christian. Again, he says prodigies had occurred, but their expiation by the offering of victims or solemn vows is held to be unlawful by a nation which is the slave of superstition and the enemy of true beliefs. And who he's talking about there are the Jews, he said, they are slaves of superstition and the enemy of true beliefs. He said, in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, of glittering armor. 
A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it, and in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. Few people placed a sinister interpretation upon this. The majority were convinced that the ancient scriptures of their priests alluded to by the present to the present as the very time when the Orient would triumph and from Judea would go forth men destined to rule the world. So what he's saying is, is this is complete reversal of what they actually believed. They believed this was the time for them to shine. This was the time when everything would, would go well. And the Messianic Age would come, and it was the time when the Orient would triumph, from from Judea would go forth men destined to rule the world. What went forth from Judea at that time? The apostles, the disciples, men like Paul, men like Philip, who goes to Samaria and then speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch. So it was fulfilled, but in order for that fulfillment to come, then the temple had to be gone that the word of god and the spirit of god went out abroad into all the world but the fulfillment of the prophecy of jesus about the signs in the heavens and the destruction that was to come and that people should flee into the hills and into the mountains from the destruction that was going to come it's this it's this very thing and and if you doubt it then I'll, like i said i'm going to post links to the 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 uh, history of uh, Josephus and the history of Tacitus that come about here. And, and so Tacitus obviously would have been a child at the time of these things. He would have been about 10 or 12 years old. And so he obviously got his information secondhand, but Josephus says, I saw it, and so did other people. And so these signs in the heavens, this destruction, this judgment— happened but it was not the second coming that was in view here it was the sending forth of the church into the world and so the age of the church in some ways begins even though there was a church already that because paul's been doing his missionary work the fullness then awaits the destruction of the temple in ad 70 and now the the prophecy of jesus is fulfilled within that generation, because we're talking about 35 years after his death. So he finishes this passage after telling them these things. These are going to happen in your lifetimes, he says. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's warning them specifically as human beings. These aren't just words that are written for us 2,000 years later. No, what, what he's warning his people about is, is, is that I'm not going to come tomorrow. You've got work ahead of you, and it's going to be tempting along the way to, to say, well, he isn't coming back, and, and to lose your focus, and to lose your perspective on things, to lose the immediacy of preparing for the coming of the kingdom because of a delay. So he says, be careful. Be careful with the way you live so that you're not caught unaware when this happens. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place 
and to stand before the Son of Man. And so these things will come on all the earth, but where does it begin? It begins, judgment always begins, with the people of God. And it begins at the household of God. And in that case, it began in the temple. What we see in the book of the Revelation, when we, when we meet Jesus in the beginning of the book of the Revelation, what we see first are the letters of judgment that he writes to the churches of Asia. The people kind of over whom John had sway. So judgment in the book of the Revelation begins in the house of God. It begins with the letters to the churches, and then it flows out to the world. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70, is, is that God's people were judged. There was a time after the crucifixion and after the resurrection when they had an opportunity to repent, because the Spirit's first given at Pentecost in Jerusalem, and thousands of people came because of the witness of what they heard. And then they heard the gospel preached. And then the disciples consistently preached the gospel in Jerusalem after that period of time until the persecution breaks out. And then people began to scatter outside Jerusalem in obedience to the commandment that Jesus had given and in, in response to the prophetic word that Jesus had given about the going out of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and the Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the important part of all this, is, is that, that judgment's always going to begin at the household of God, and so we who take the name of Christ are the ones who need to be most prepared. We need to be those who are most focused. We need to be able to read the signs of the times. The problem is, is that we get so enmeshed in the times that we no longer can stand back and evaluate those things in light of the gospel and in light of the prophecies that are in the gospel. Because we, we get too involved in those things. And what this call is, is for us to separate ourselves emotionally from those things as best we can in order that we can see them and perceive the times in light of the gospel and in light of the promise of the coming again. In order to see things rightly, we have to see them through those eyes, not the eyes of those who are enmeshed in the details of the day-to-day. And so the call for Advent is to separate ourselves from that. It's a call to open our eyes and stand back from culture, stand back from politics, stand back from everything, and look at those things in light of the gospel, and then begin to bring the gospel into first our lives to replace those places we're cleaning out of our lives and then into the world and to be able to speak the truth into the world we need to be somewhat separate from the world in order to bring truth into it because we've got to bring it from the perspective of the gospel not from the perspective of conservative and liberal in terms of politics and things like that we've got to see it differently in the First Thessalonians passage today, Paul just says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. Paul says, I'm so thankful for you. I give thanks for you always. There's no more thanks I can give than the joy we feel for your sake before our God. And we pray day and night 
that we may see you face to face to supply what's lacking in your faith. Whatever it is that's lacking, we want to be able to come and provide those things to you. And now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that should be our prayer, and we should be working towards that very thing, that peace and love would abound in our fellowship with one another. Whether we belong to the same church or not is an immaterial kind of a reality in this. What, what, what Paul's saying is, is that I want all Christians to love one another and, and for all. So to transfer that love in the fellowship out into the world, into everybody with whom we come into contact. We're intended to share the love of Christ in all those ways. And the only way we can do that is by speaking the truth and the urgency of, of preaching the gospel at all places and in all times in order that as many as possible might hear it and come to saving faith in order that they and the world we live in might be transformed in our day, but that there might be multitudes prepared to greet that coming again in ways that we failed to greet him in the incarnation. Our job as Christians is to prepare ourselves first and to become more and more Christ-like. And the only way we can do that, in my mind, is to separate our minds and our hearts from the events of the world in order that we might see them through the eyes of the Spirit, interpreting the times, allowing us to effectively share the gospel in the world we live in.